Hi, this is the podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending August 6th. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you will hear us uh, chat to Celia Pacola about the very last uh, ever season of Rosehaven. And we also hear from Bobby about uh, what she does when an interview goes wrong. We have a chat to Simon Hinckley about funnel web spiders and how they are mending, uh, mending hearts with their cute venom. We chat about music festivals, a bit of crowd surfing in there. And we also had Dennis Altman on the show chatting about his new book, God Save the Queen, The Strange Persistence of Monarchies. Filmmaker Madeleine Martiniello dropped by to introduce us to the new Franco Cozzo documentary screening at MIF called Palazzo de Cozzo. And there was further cataloguing of failures when we looked at the agony of blowing an audition. Melbourne's own Triple R. Celia Pagola is a stand-up comedian, actor and former full-time TV dancer who has won Orgies, Actors and the Hearts of Australians for her work and roles across the gamut of entertainment. She's also co-creator, co-writer and star of the fifth and final season of narrative comedy Rosehaven, which is Wednesday on the ABC. And to tell us about it, the honorary Taswegian joins us now. Celia, welcome back to Breakfasters. Oh my goodness, Daniel, what an intro. <laughs> <laughs> I was not expecting to hear the word gamut. <laughs> um, incredible. Yes, you... I am a full-time dancer. <laughs> That's right. How, uh, just on that quickly, is, have you reverted, is there anything that you've kept or is it all back to uh, The shoes, but they're in a cupboard. <laughs> okay. Uh, definitely not the fitness or the the rhythm or or the, co- the costumes, but the trophy, I've still got the trophy, mm. so that, that counts. Is that, on a, is that on a shelf or the mantelpiece? Or? It is on a shelf. It's a particularly garish trophy, you know? It's a, it's a, what it's a surprise. A <laughs> it's pardon? I said, what a surprise. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, I'm glad I have it because otherwise no one believes me because it sounds like a joke if I say to people I was on Dancing with the Stars. I get it because it, it, it it's confusing whether or not it is a joke because it's real but it's also a joke. Yeah. <laughs> and did it, it happen during the pandemic as well, which makes it a bit more surreal? It was right on the tail end. There was one episode, because it was live, there was one episode where the broadcast was interrupted to go to Scott Morrison talking about lockdown <laughs> rules and the, the terrible, you know, like Independence Day speech. Yeah, and then yeah. they came back and went, and now here's Celia and Jared. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really bizarre, but I miss when that was the most surreal part of my life. Like, I can't believe that that was, you know, I miss when that was normal. Yeah, that exactly. was March twenty, but... Anyway, <laughs> is, is is this an emo period for you? The fifth, the final season, and wrapping it all up. Emo, it's a, it's very emotional. Look, I don't know how I feel. Look, we had. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I'm tired and emotional today. You know mm. that thing that celebrities say when they don't want to say hungover. <laughs> <laughs> Because we're, I'm in Tasmania right now, so we did a screening. We always do a screening in Tasmania for the Tasmanian cast and crew um, pre-going on air so they get to see the first couple of episodes. So it was, the you know, probably the last time I'll see a lot of these people because mm. usually it's like, I'll see you next season, I'll see you next thing, but this time it's just like, well, I'll see ya. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really sad, but we're, you know, it'll be 40 episodes and um, we're really proud to be able to go out on our own terms. You know, we've really... <laughs> it's really, you know, wonderful to be able to put a bullet in our, ourselves oh, no. they want, killing all the characters and explosions and dragons. <laughs> yeah, so it's I'm sad, but every time I get sad, I think of this is this is the best case scenario of how to go out. You know? People know that you and Luca, you know, best mates in real life. But do you think making this 
together over these last years has changed anything in your friendship at all? Oh, it's absolutely built. He's the he's my closest friend in the whole world. Like I've spent more time with him than anyone else in my whole life. And we it wasn't that way at the start. It wasn't like we were mm. super close buddies and then we decided to do this together. We were acquaintances who signed a contract that forced us to be, <laughs> be friends and it just worked out. And the thing I think we've talked we've talked about this a lot is I think what really made our friendship so much stronger is because we were both going through it for the first time at the same time. Like he was the only other person who knew exactly what I was going through because he was going through it as well. Um, so I know. So I just I love him very much. And, uh, yeah, it's it's unfortunately no comedy answer there because I'm <laughs> I just no, I, I, want, I wanted the emotion. Celia. Yeah. That's why I asked. Okay. <laughs> he, um, yeah. I, so I heard Luke mention 1,600 pages of script, which means – it sounds pretty specific and uh, kind of like counting down to the end of a school day. What what was the writing period like? Was it was there lots of snacks? Was it was it fun? Was there lots of monotone? That's funny, you know, like uh, yeah, that's funny. Mm. Um, <laughs> that's, I know what you mean. That's a very comedian thing. You don't laugh. You just go, "That's funny." And often, the, the angrier you say it, the funnier it is. <laughs> Um, is this season's writing situation was different from all the other ones because we wrote it in lockdown in Melbourne, so we weren't in the same room ever and we weren't writing it because it was anyone asked us to. We were just doing it to distract ourselves and pretend to be in a different world. So it was actually the most fun writing experience because we had more time and it was a real escape for us rather than being like, oh, shit, we've got a deadline, we've got to get it it done. But... um, it's just fun. It was just, and particularly because we knew it was the last season, it was like, right, everything on the table, what's something that you've gone, I've always wanted to do this, let's have a crack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often it's just us talking rubbish, like literally back and forth, and then we just write it down. Like mm-hmm. we word for word, we'll have a bit of a riff and then, <laughs> and then just put that in, in the show. So there is lots of food and snacks, obviously, a lot of breaks, <laughs> toilet breaks mainly for Luke. He spent so much time. <laughs> he should go, he should see something. He, the man pees a lot, and I think he'd be okay with me saying yeah. it. But, um... <laughs> Was, you, you know when you go on holiday and you go, oh, I could live here or whatever, uh, with, is that Oatlands? Is that where you are? Um, I'm in Hobart, so Oatlands is one of the places we film. So Rosehaven isn't, doesn't exist for real. It's sort of a combination of a bunch of different places. Mm. So Oatlands is one of them, Jeeveston, um, New Norfolk, Longley, it's all over the place. Do you feel like a bit of a Sigrid Thornton, like a, a, <laughs> an icon for tree changing? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, the, the, the real estate market in Tasmania has boomed, and yeah. I'm not saying that's because of us, but I'm also saying that is because of us. <laughs> yeah. Which sucks because then we come back to film and we can't get any locations because they're all rented out. So we've really screwed ourselves over. <laughs> like we've had to move our office four times because we come back and it's been bought or, you know, rented out or something. Um, but I would, I could live in Tassie, not now. I could li- I could retire in Tassie and, you know, be in a recluse up in the mountains and write a novel and, you know, have a big heavy blanket and sit in <laughs> Are you two going to miss each other? Have you got things in the pipeline? <laughs> oh, sorry, I, I shouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> um, yeah, really, weirdly what we want to do is just have some friendship time. Like, weirdly, we actually want to come to Tasmania and just hang out. So kind of we want to continue doing the show just without filming it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'll definitely work together in the future and, and uh, I think our friendship is pretty solid. I mean, we've got 40 episodes. We've got seven years of this to reflect back on and go, hey, do you remember that time that you had a problem with that 
runner who made you coffee and you didn't trust him, so you'd, you'd throw out the coffee if he made it for you. So there's like a hundred of those million things. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think he's – I don't think we'll stop hanging out. But, yeah, we'll definitely work together again, but maybe on something – a bit different next time. Sci-fi, that's what we're hoping for. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's pretty rare to be able to make this kind of TV in Australia these days, like increasingly anyway. Do you – would you want the opportunity to do something like this again? Would you write another TV series or do you just want to go and – do you want to be a comedian for a while or do you just want to – I kept trying to get back into stand-up. 2020 was supposed to be my year of getting back into live performance Good and travel. Good on you. Good on you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I keep trying to get back into stand-up and then things get cancelled. So stand-up for sure. Um, I wouldn't want to jump straight back into something like this because as this was really good advice if anyone's thinking of making a series that we got very early on, which is don't try and make something unless you really want to because what if it gets picked up, it's your whole life. Like it's so involved and it's been non-stop for the past seven years. So I'm I'm ready to to just have a bit of play on maybe someone else's project, you know, to just pop up and do some cameos and do some little things rather than it it being my whole um, thing. But, yeah, I'm interested in doing some stand-up and maybe a bit of drama. And, look, I didn't think I was going to be on a reality dancing show, so who knows? Maybe there's something I haven't even thought of that's going to come up. Maybe I'll be a celebrity pet groomer next. Who knows? That's right. (laughs) I mean, what about, like, Eric Banner where Americans are like, oh, I didn't know you did stand-up, and it was like... Yeah, do you, do you, yeah. Do you think Boy about? Up. Do you think about that? It's like, oh, actually, I'm a pretty do, good bloody actor. I do actor. think whether or not I will play Chopper one day. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love it. I'd love a. I'd love a. Um, I want a dramatic turn. I want a. I want a. You know, a mayor of East Town kind of. Mm. What was? Oh, I feel really bad that I can't remember the series that you were in. A beautiful life. Sure. Oh my god, I loved you in that Celia, mm, and it was before same. I knew you. And I started working with Geraldine Hickey, and she's like, "Oh, yeah, Celia's my best mate." And I'm like, oh, "Okay, whatever." <laughs> but I was like. You, I was obsessed. You were so good doing drama that I want to see you do more drama. That's, it. That's the only one I've ever done, and I and uh, and I think it went pretty well. I thought, but yeah, it's no. I would love to do that again. Also, just fun fact for your listeners: if there is a Breakfasters Rosehaven crossover fan, um, Susan Youssef's character called Jez in Rosehaven is named after Geraldine Hickey. Well, really? So, have it. so Geraldine Hickey has a small cameo in season four, which is also available on iView episode eight, season four. If you want to see Geraldine Hickey. <laughs> having a little turn around Rosehaven. Um, that's the fun thing about making your own show as well is you can just invite your friends to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> What about the actors, other actors that you've brought in and you're just like, oh, this is pretty lucky that we get to, you know, enlist? Oh, totally. Um, well, we liked with a lot, a lot of super known people, which we love, like there's people like Nola Foxcroft who plays Mrs Marsh, who we just did an open casting in, in Tasmania and she just – walked in off the street pretty much and blew us away and has, you know, been an absolute star for, mm. for 40 episodes. Um, but then we get to play with some incredible, like Chris McQuaid, like some of the most, the strongest um, female actors in in the world, in the country, who come and do silliness with us. And this season, we've been trying to get it for five seasons, we finally got Pamela Rabe. <gasps> Have you? We got her. She's in episode two and she's amazing. And, um, you know, so funny and so great. So that was a real highlight. Um, but, yeah, Chris McQuaid uh, and Kim Nucky, who's Greg, who's our police officer, just they're all divine and I, I'm going to miss them all dearly. Sam Cotton, also who's Bruce, who's Luke's um, bully, he's about to go and be so famous. I don't know how, but he's definitely going to be in the Marvel Universe and I and I can't oh, wait wow. to 
to call him up and go, hey, do you have Chris Hemsworth's number? Because I just need to talk to him about something. <laughs> totally. Well, you've called it. How exciting that you get to call that. Really? Yeah. Oh, how delicious. All right. Well, it's Wednesday, 9 p.m. Uh, yeah. And what do you want people to know about it? Anything? Just watch. Just look. It's If you don't like it, there's nothing I can do for you. <laughs> <laughs> Five seasons in now. If you liked it so far, you'll like this. Um, if you didn't like it ever, then you probably won't like it. But it's if we are throwing everything we've got at it. I think it's our best season and I really hope that, that people enjoy it. And thank you. Also, let's say... Thank you for everyone who's watched it so far that made you know made it possible to get to five seasons. Good on you. Thanks very much, Celia. Sorry, no good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. I was um <laughs> I was interviewed on community community radio a, a very long time ago. Um, and I was there to chat about my women's cricket club. Uh, so it was just my job to chat for 10 or 15 minutes about how the club was going. I, I was playing in the twos at the time. It was when I was phasing out and kind of going into the social uh, social end of my career. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the top end was social as well, but it was a little bit more elite. It was a bit better, whereas I could, you know, play hungover towards the end of my career um, or admit that I was playing hungover towards the end anyway. Um, So I knew everything about the twos and I knew a bit about the threes. Um, And so I was doing the interview and was chatting away and I knew all the results, how people were going, uh, great updates on the twos and threes. And then uh, the interviewer asked me uh, about the ones and I realised that I had no idea about how our firsts were going that year. And he he asked me and I did something horrible. What? I hung up. Get Are you serious? It was a phone (laughs) interview and I hung up. I freaked out and I hung up and I threw my phone across the room and then my phone rang and I sat there staring at my phone and then... I, I couldn't tell anyone. Like, horrible. Horrible. This I poor just, host. I love that, but what a great... I think it's better than dead air or saying, I don't know, hanging up's like, and we're being disconnected. I love right. that. I love that as and a strategy. You Mel Meninged. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And, you know, I had a text from a couple of people from the club. They're like, hey, what happened? That was going so well. It just cut out. Um, and I didn't respond to them. I thought, I think I should just pretend that my phone broke. Just, just don't do anything. So I, I think I sat there for half an hour afterwards just not doing anything. Um, and then afterwards I, when I was back at the club, they're like, hey, what happened to your interview? It was really good and must have, must have cut out or something. And I let that story go for the rest of the season because I just I felt bad. So you didn't tell anyone? I didn't. I mean, I haven't. I'm telling everyone now. No, I, I did tell people like a year later or something and they're like, you are kidding me. I'm just like, I didn't know what to say. I couldn't lie and I'd look like an idiot. That way I didn't look like an idiot. I mean, why I do you, now. What, but... Don't take this the wrong way, but why didn't you know what the ones were up to? Oh, because I wasn't playing in the team. I didn't care. But you were, you were the spokesperson for the club. I you? was, yes, and I'm now a life member. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, too I, hungover to get I, was, I, I, just, I honestly just thought I was going to be talking about the twos and I thankfully knew a little bit about the threes because I think I'd filled in a couple of games there. So... Yeah, I, I mean, I should have known better. It, it was terrible. Like, I, I was there to talk about the club and I, and I didn't know about the Premier team, like the one with all our state and Australian players. There's such a skill to 
answering a question when you don't know, know it <sighs> and just make, you, you know, politicians often do it, but this, like, deflection of the question, so you deflect to another idea to make it sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. But it's a, it's a hard skill, like, to kind of move it from the ones back to the twos. Yeah. Well, answer the question you wish you're asked, but in that instance, yeah. it seems absolutely impossible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah true. We're actually. hanging up sounds like a viable option. Well, thank you. I, I mean, I got back and I I mean, it, it was it was horrible, but at the time I thought that was the only thing that I could do. I wish I could hang up interviewing people sometimes though, as well. <laughs> you know, when you kind of have blanks. Like I've had blanks. I interviewed people a lot for a living before this job, musicians, and I guess sometimes you're tired or if you're at a festival, you hit a wall yep. and you can't you can't hang up in real life. The worst interview I gave, I was doing with someone who was quite famous. I was over the phone and it had been a really rough week and this in my life personally and this interview kept getting rescheduled and it was with Damon from Blur for his Gorillas tour wow. and I was a huge fan when I was a kid and so I was quite nervous about it but he kept rescheduling and rescheduling and rescheduling to the point where it was like you're just going to have to take this call on a random Saturday when it comes through and when it did come through I just wasn't I wasn't in the right state of mind and at one point someone who I thought I could talk to in my head in a pub for five years you know you imagine those (laughs) as a teenager I'd be like me and Damon to talk about all these things and then when the interview happened it started well he was in he's a bit of a he's a a tricky interview because he's really he's just very he sounds flat when he talks like he doesn't have a lot of excitement in his voice and I just blanked I just my brain just shut down at one point and this had never happened to me I was far enough into my career to have never and it just stopped and I went oh I'm sorry my computer screen just went blank that's what I said to Damon Albarn good cover. My, my computer screen just went blank and he went oh okay okay and I said can you just give me a moment and I just sat back and went <gasps> Like deep breathed off phone, and then was just sort of regathered my thoughts and came back into it. But I don't know. Oh. Like, I've I'd never ever had that. Happen. I think I was under a lot of stress outside of at life at the moment, and it was just the worst timing for all of these things to happen. But that was my equivalent of hanging up the phone. But I yeah. couldn't hang up the phone. I just went silent and went. I'm sorry. What does that even mean? My computer screen just went blank. Like oh, I was sitting viable. in front of my computer. Just reading questions off a sheet or something, yeah. which is not what I was, you know, it's not what you do. Um, but he, he took it and I moved on and it was fine. But I, I remember thinking in that moment, I wish I could have, I wish I could have hung up. I wish I could have gone to Bobby <laughs> yeah. McCumber and just gone, <laughs> hang up and had a chance to start all over again. Because you made yeah. the calculation saying the computer blanked. It's like, no, I'm not starstruck. I'm just a hack. Yeah, I'm just a total hack. <laughs> <laughs> I have no, I have 10 questions written down and I have no, Didn't nothing to fall it. back on. Like, I probably could name every album you've ever recorded and talk, you know, but I, yeah, yeah it was just, I just think there are moments like that that happen and they make you feel so human. Um, but I just love the approach of just hanging up a phone. I yeah. wish I'd done that more often. Mm. Uh, Daniel, you've interviewed heaps of people. Have yeah. you ever had that happen? Like, you've done camera on like live TV and stuff. Yeah, I was. <sighs> I mean, I, you blank all the time. Oh, yeah. No, but I mean, blanking, that level of blanking, yeah. that is, that's happened a few times. Yeah. Like, it's almost I, like having cover happened to your brain. It's, it's what's happened on stage. Oh, <gasps> really? <sighs> yeah. Uh, Did you walk off stage? Basically. <laughs> basically. But it was at the end anyway. Oh, right. Yep. Or just about the end. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, so what, what did you do? I just walked off stage. I was just, 
I mean, I were I, you interviewing someone, or were they interviewing you, or were you in it? What was no, I was, I was performing on some level, oh. and there was a laugh, and then I got a laugh of blanking, and then left, and so it was, looked like a it looked <laughs> it looked like the proper. It, end. Like it was part of. Oh, it. that's good. <sighs> you made it seem like it was right. Mm. I was uh, working at the cricket, and I had. Um, so I was the on-field host and I was interviewing people in the crowd and whatever else. And, and it's always nice when you get a character and someone that will be entertaining on the big screen. And I had this cute young girl. She was like eight and she was like, she was like, oh, interview me, interview me. I was like, oh, all right. And I thought, I'll have a chat first. And, and she knew all about the women's cricket team that were playing and she had a favourite player and she's telling me, you know, she played cricket on the weekend and she was full of stories. So I was like, oh, here we go. We've got an interview here. And then I'm like, uh, the camera's on, I'm like, I'm joined by eight-year-old Sarah. Uh, what do you love about cricket, Sarah? And she just stared and no. smiled. And I tried to prompt her. I was like, who's your favourite player? You were talking about Elise Perry. What do you love about Elise Perry? And she was just staring at the camera, smiling. Oh, that's so cute as well. <laughs> and that's the thing. So she didn't say anything. I said a couple of things. We had a bit of a laugh. Well, I had a bit of a laugh. I think the stadium did. Um, but she said nothing. She couldn't say a word. She oh. was just staring at the camera and smiling. And you've got an entire stadium staring at you yeah. waiting for this moment. Yeah. There was an audition for Hungry Beast and I was totally, completely forgot about it until recently when it was the front cover of The Green Guide. Uh, remember the show Hungry Beast? Yeah. It was created by Andrew Denton. Yeah. Anyway, there are all these applicants and I was shortlisted. Oh. And uh, was it? Is I had it, a friend who worked on that show. Right. Maybe she got your spot. Yeah, possibly. Um, so I think Kirsten Drysdale was talking about this audition process that was just a nightmare, and it was. Like they put you in a room with a video camera and with all of these props and then asked you, to, they said, we'll give you five minutes or less and you have to come up with this piece or something. And I remember there were copies of Hansard there and I'm reading Hansards and... And uh, anyway, I just had the most uh, a short list. Fil- so this is what says. Are they filming you? What, are they watching you do this? Is that what the video camera is? I think that I think you have time, and then they film what you produce from that time. Okay. But I was reading. It said a short list of sixty got longer in-person interviews. So I was one of those sixty, which culminated in a request to enter a room with a prop and a video camera to improvise a short piece. It was the worst piece of content I've ever produced in my life. Says Kirsten Drysdale, <laughs> who was unemployed and had to create with a garden gnome. So like a garden gnome was in there when she was accepted initially as a researcher, but went on camera. She was convinced the producers had made a mistake. And when I read that, I got absolute chills. Really? Because I remembered the – I didn't choke, but I remembered the, oh, this is how you choke. And what did oh, you – do wow. you know what did you – did you come I've, up with oh, something? Oh, I would have blanked it completely. Really? Yeah, uh, as, for, as a memory because obviously it's – you're set up to humiliate yourself. But oh. uh, you just persevere anyway. You have to. Oh, Say well. something, anything. Say metal or whatever you. <laughs> well, look at us now. I mean, you know, absolutely dominating. You're getting, <laughs> getting paid to talk uh, really well. Barely. Triple R. Simon Bugman Hickley is back on Breakfasters to uh, convince us we've been wrong about funnel web spiders. Morning, Simon. Good morning, everybody. Uh, do the impossible. <laughs> okay. 
Well, uh, there's been some really, really interesting research being carried out on a particular species of funnel web up in Queensland, in particular uh, a population that occurs on Fraser Island. But um, as a bit of background, I guess most people will know of the Sydney funnel web and, of course, I guess the, the redback would be the two sort of iconic Australian spider species. There are actually probably around about 40 different species of funnel web spider in Australia. So it's it's a reasonably diverse little group of spiders. And of course, the, the fear that people have of them is that the Sydney funnel web in particular has caused fatalities. So there's been um, 13 deaths caused by bites from the Sydney funnel web. I do like to compare that to, and I might have used this with you in the past, so apologies if I'm repeating myself, but... There was a great study done by Melbourne University from the years 2000 to 2013 looking at hospital admissions and deaths and that sort of thing and coming up with Australia's most dangerous animal. If you had to have a guess, what would you say Australia's most dangerous animal in terms of human fatalities is? Oh, uh, box, that there's oh, something in the sea. Jellyfish. Yeah, box, box jellyfish. jellyfish. Box jellyfish. It's, a good one. it's actually the horse. So oh, I was going to say an that- emu. But then, <laughs> anyway. I love the idea of emus taking people out, except yeah. for those people. But um, that's uh, I, sorry, I'm just now imagining. I'm so emus. sorry, I shouldn't have. I just thought it'd so be something like that looked day. friendly and uh-huh. wasn't. So in that time period, uh, there was zero fatalities from spider bites. There hasn't been uh, a fatality from the Sydney funnel web since an antivenom was um, uh, put together back in 1981. But in that 13-year period, 74 people died as a result of interaction with horses, either, I guess, falling off or having a horse fall on them. So it's interesting in the sense that, you kicked. know, very few people are walking past a field saying, kill the horses, kill the horses, but they're really a, a much more dangerous animal than the funnel web. But, so, yes, funnel webs do cause fatalities, have caused fatalities, uh, and I guess one of the reasons, what's very interesting about the Sydney funnel web is the difference in the venom toxicity between the males and the females. So the females tend to remain pretty much in their burrows. They have um, silk trip lines coming out from the entrance and they're sitting just inside the entrance to the burrow. So any little animal or insect that walks across and trips those lines, it's like an alarm. The female rushes out, bites, and that's the prey. The male, however, uh, needs to go wandering looking for a female. So he will leave his burrow. They don't live together because the female would probably kill him. They, so he'll leave his burrow and go searching for a female. And at that time, he feels particularly exposed because he literally is and obviously will respond fairly vigorously if he's cornered or stepped on, that sort of thing. And all of the bites, all of the fatalities that have been caused have been caused by the males. They have uh, something in their venom called a toxin, which is um, something the females don't have. So it's very interesting that the within a species you have such a different uh, venom toxicity. And I guess one suggestion might be that the males are more vulnerable, they're out and about, so they may have developed uh, a more powerful venom. Mm. But also what's unusual about the Sydney, the funnel webs is that primates are particularly vulnerable to a bite from the funnel webs. So whereas, you say, your rabbit, your dog, your cat, it's going to hurt but they're not going to be at great risk from a Sydney funnel web bite, whereas us or if the chimpanzees or gorillas get out of Taronga Park Zoo and they get bitten by a funnel web, it's a very different story. Mm-hmm. So it's there's a whole lot of sort of interesting questions there around the venom. Can I ask just quickly? Of course. Uh, uh, the, um, the, on the Sydney funnel web, you know that revolting hairy sack at the back? <laughs> yeah. What's do that? The, do you mean the abdomen or the, the two little sort of extensions off the end of the abdomen? No, the abdomen. 
Yeah. What's what's going on in there? Well, I guess that's the equivalent of all of our, I guess, if you imagine our, our stomach and all our internal organs. So our basically, the, the, Where's sorry, the venom? Sarah? Does the venom live in that little ball? Oh, no, sorry. The, the venom is um, actually up in, so the two large, they do have large fangs. The two large fangs up at the head end have the venom glands in them. So all the, the venom is held up in the fangs. The, the abdomen at the back, uh, and you may be able to see that there's two little tubes coming off. They're the spinnerets that produce the silk. Yeah. And in the abdomen is all basically a lot of the organs and stuff. Oh, yeah. So the, the cephalothorax, which is the head and the thorax combined, is where the legs attach and most of the organs and that sort of processing is going on in the abdomen. They just carried around. What did you call it, that disgusting sack? That hairy sack, yeah. Hairy sack. Well, it is. I mean, that's accurate. It's accurate, isn't it? Yeah, it's accurate. It might be distasteful. Oh, it's such... It's all too much. Don't Google it. I'm obviously obviously not convincing anybody, but I I was reading some research where they were digging up the... um, When they dig up the funnel webs and uh, they described the burrow because you sort of imagine it might be this sort of classy silk lined tunnel and one description was uh pretty much a dirty footy sock you know sort of all held together with dirt and silk and stuff so they're not sort of doing themselves any favors underground either but um what they have discovered with this particular species up in um queensland and in particular a population on fraser island that population being on an island has been isolated and so you have um you know genetic uh, you have sort of different uh, things happening with the venom than you do on the mainland because of that isolation. And one of the researchers found that in the event of a heart attack, what happens is our, our heart muscle is deprived of oxygen, it becomes acidic, and the cells start to send messages to die. So it's, they're basically sort of shutting themselves down. What they found with this venom from the, the spider on Fraser Island is that it blocks the, the pathway that tells the cells to send those messages to die. So it's really potentially um, game-changing in the sense that Australia has 60,000 heart attacks a year. And, you know, if we have a sort of, thanks to COVID, I'm blaming COVID, if we're sort of putting on increasing weight and, you know, we're getting older as a population, that sort of thing, obviously we're still going to have heart attacks. But if this, and, and of course, one of the problems with Australia is being such a huge country, if you have a heart attack in Carnarvon or on the Nullarbor or on the top of Mount Bogong, obviously the more time it takes to get you to hospital, that damage to the heart may not be um, reversible. So the idea, years down the track, because I'll need to do years of research and then there's human trials, but I guess the the ultimate aim is that ambulances or doctors would be, I guess like an EpiPen, would be equipped with this sort of compound that in the event of a heart attack that's administered and it slows down the cell damage until you can get help. And the other way where it might be applicable is obviously in heart transplants. So you can imagine, obviously, um, if some very amazing person has an organ donor card and their heart is available, the longer you take to get that heart to the new recipient, the less chance there is of success. So any time that you can add to the survival of the heart will be critical. So it's really interesting research. And I guess it sort of shows that an animal that a lot of us sort of think if not open loathing, at least indifference, like, you know, well, we've got 40 different types of funnel webs. Why do we need 40? Why do we need one? Who knows what other things there might be in the venom of these particular species that could be to our benefit. So the venom needs, what needs to happen to the venom, which previously would kill a person to now save their life? Yeah. So the the funnel web venom is really interesting because it contains, it's really, really complex. There's thousands of different proteins and molecules and they've isolated a particular protein and in working on that so yes if you're given a dose of the venom entire 
um, that's not going to help you. It's going to probably give you a heart attack, but it's certainly not going to help you. But by isolating compounds or molecules from the venom and then sort of working out what part they play in the the um the envenomation you can sort of say well okay so this one's going to shut down that pathway we want to shut down that pathway so just isolate that particular part and use that but don't use the other 999 parts that actually shut down all these other things so it's a just a way i guess of the researchers at university of queensland and, and the victor chang heart institute having to spend that's why it takes so long isolating the particular thing finding out what everything does and then using it in the appropriate ways have you ever been – when was the last time you were bitten by a spider? I have never been bitten by a spider. I, I do my best to be not bitten by snakes, spiders, jellyfish, crocodile sharks, <laughs> anything that we have in Australia. Um, so I certainly – I've collected a lot, but um, I've never actually been bitten by one. So oh, yeah. um, Maybe yeah, that's why I'm, you're so sympathetic. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that's right. Um, and I guess also – I mean, it's interesting in the sense just of, I guess, things, you know, if you actually look at them up close, they're really not too up close, but they're really amazing creatures and, you know, they, they do a really good thing for us. We sort of know that they're nature's um, insecticides and that they kill, you know, millions and millions, billions of insects for us that would otherwise be a problem. So they play a really important role in the environment and if you can if you can face it and make yourself look at them, they're actually quite amazing and beautiful yeah. in their own way. And when we're developing anti-venoms and perhaps doing this research down the line, what do you? Yeah. how do you get it out? Do you have to milk the gland? Oh, yeah, the, um, there's, there's a, a milking Science program. It's here. the Australian Reptile Park in New South Wales, and they have uh, a couple of thousand uh, funnel webs, I think, on site. And what they do is they have tiny, tiny little pipettes with like a little sort of vacuum attached to them. They get the spider to rear back, and the spider, you can see the little droplets of venom on the end of the, the big fangs. And they just sort of touch the pipette to the fangs and sort of um, aspirate up the venom. And they do that by X number of hundred spiders to, to get the venom, send it off to the labs, and then they do their thing where they isolate the particular proteins and that sort of thing. Awesome. Uh, funks. Funks. <laughs> funks. Big man. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I was also going to quickly say yep. um, we do have some funnel webs on display at the, uh, the Melbourne Museum. Our live exhibits department has a number of different species. Yep. They often just sit very still and don't do a lot. But if you're ever wanting to sort of look at a funnel web up close with oh, glasses yeah, between it's you awesome. and them. Come and have a look in the museum. Bloody oath. Thanks, I'm Bugman. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks very much. Uh, you're on Triple R. Triple R. I went to a lot of, uh, I think, dance music festivals. I went to Summer Days. Do you remember Summer Days? Yes. Yeah, I went to that like oh, every year for about 10 years, I think it was. Um, but I went to uh, the Big Day Out with my brothers and that was the first time I'd been to, I guess, a festival with bands and everything as well. I How was, old are you kind of talking? Um, I was probably... I don't know, early 20s? Yeah. Something like that. Uh, Foo Fighters were headlining, I believe. Yeah, so 2001? Possibly. Two. Oh, yeah, so I would have been 20. Yeah. Right. Uh, and Jebediah were playing as well. Oh. And I, um, we got there and I guess it was a different crowd and vibe to uh, Summer Days and all the other festivals that I've been to. And I said to my brother, I had another friend there, I was like, oh, I'm just going to go for a walk. We, we had a base where we were all going to meet. Um, he's like, all right. He goes, try to have fun. And I kind of laughed, like as if I'm not going to have fun, right? Um, but I went uh, to Jebediah and I went into was playing on one of the smaller stages and I was having such a ball and I saw people around me crowd surfing and I said to my friend, I'm like, 
I'm going to do it. Stuff it. Let's, <laughs> let's just do it. And there was, a, there was a group of guys in front of me that were throwing people up. Uh, so I tapped them. I was like, hey, do you reckon you could throw me up uh, so I could crowd surf? They're like, yeah, sure. It's like, okay, great. Anyway, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to do it. So these five guys went around me and they bent down and, like, grabbed my legs. And then they're like, ready? Three, two, one. They threw me up. And then the song finished. And then I went straight back down. <laughs> because <laughs> everyone's hands just went down so I went straight back down but into the group so they kind of caught me but it was and oh it wasn't um the, ex- <laughs> the experience that I was hoping for although um everyone we kind of laughed and I didn't get hurt um but then we did it again and I ended up crowd surfing and then getting right to the front and then security had to get me and take me out and I wasn't allowed back in that section um but oh my god what a thrill I'm not sure if you've crowd surfed before but it was bloody brilliant Oh, I was too much of a chicken, always too much of a chicken to crowd surf. I've had so many bad moments of getting stuck at the front of mosh pits and getting pulled under, but I was never, I never had the, like, um, I was going to say, I was trying to. I didn't want to say I never had the balls, but I I got halfway there and I was like, but I never, I never, yeah, I never had the bravery to be able to get up and like get on top of the crowd. Yeah. I, I found it so terrifying seeing that, mm. Dan. You, you, were you a... No. Well, what's it like? I mean, is it, do you feel safe? Do you, is it, do you feel like you're a part of an organism? What, what's the it sensation? Was, it was exhilarating. Like, it, and everyone was just so happy. And then I just remember I was having so much fun. And then as I was getting closer to the front, I could see security like with these arms out like going bring her here and I was like no (laughs) Uh, but then yeah he got me and I was like please don't kick me out he goes no you're right you just can't stay in this area yeah go to another stage so do you get shunted you ever go to another stage yeah oh well I mean I probably could have gone back to that one but they took me out at the front entrance bit so I had to go all the way around yeah so um I went all the way I, I don't think I went back in to that area. I so just... you really got to pick your moment. So you got to go at the start of a song when the arms yes. are up yeah. yes. and you want to go towards the end of the set. Well, because it, as yeah. well with the D, with the D barriers, so if you're the big day out, once they introduce the D barriers, you, once you went out, if they if the security didn't let you back over the fence immediately into the front of the pit, which they rarely would, they'd take you out the side, you'd have to line up to get back in the D barrier. Mm. So you do have to go, this is my moment, I don't mind if I'm going to give it all up. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember lining up for the Stooges. The, when they played the big day out where um, it was at Princess Park, which is so lovely, it was like a luxury big day out. Yeah. Um, I remember lining up. I kind of waited to see them all day, retained my energy, saw the band before, lined up, got right at the front because I knew they were going to call everyone on stage, which is kind of what they do. But it was their first ever tour of Australia and I'd seen it happen at the other big day out, so I was going to be there for that moment. And I was at the front with my brother and a friend and um, when they came on, the moment where they said, everyone get up on stage, the security guards know this is going to happen. So they're so confused because they've been trained to stop this from happening, but they also have to let it happen because it's part of the show. And so I got shoved over by my brother, fell on my face. (laughs) Jumped up on stage next to Iggy Pop and then the security at that exact moment yanked me by my neck and pulled me off. So I didn't get onto the stage where all the kids were dancing, but I got to stay in that bit in between where the security, where they let me kind of stay there. And then Iggy kind of came down and sat on the edge of the stage and I kind of 
Oh, that's cool. Grab his leg or something. I don't know what I did. Something really uncool. (laughs) Surely. Yeah, I just had that, oh, what do I do? Grab Iggy Pop's leg. And then they were tossing everyone out and I thought, no, I can't. Like, this is the set I'm here for because it's not at the end of the set. They keep playing after that. And I, my brother grabbed me and goes, no, when the security were trying to escort me out and pulled me headfirst back into the pit. And I just ended up like a pencil upside down, like my legs in the air. Um, and my face in the ground. I remember this so clearly. But got st- like remained at the front of the oh, pit because of what he did. It was uncomfortable, brilliant. and everyone kind of helped me out or whatever. What a but hero! I know what a hero. Oh, gang. Nearly <laughs> killed me, but I got to see the rest of the set. Like, Yoinked by gone. your neck, grabbing legs, pulling heads. I know, but oh. still not brave enough to get up and do the like go on top of a crowd. Yeah, you know, yeah. well, I did it once. I didn't do it again. I was just thinking about how. Because I was thinking about uh, maybe saw Wayne at Golden Plains like, yeah. over 10 years ago. And well, it's funny because their set went for 10 years. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah they, they just played for like three hours at that Golden Plains. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I remember, and only last night, I had an epiphany. I don't know, coincidentally, we're talking about festivals, but I had an epiphany and I thought, I reckon Gabriel, my 16 months old son, will like Voodoo Lady. Oh, why? I don't know. Just this, the oogie, oogie, oogie. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, talk about Ween is like a, a band that translates to kids. Yeah. Like, they could be a kid's band, yeah. right? Yeah. And he went nuts. Oh, really? Yeah. I love that. And I thought, and I thought, look at how far you've fallen, though, Daniel, <laughs> from that music festival <laughs> going Being nuts. at the festival. To- <laughs> I think my kid would love oogie, oogie, oogie. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Dennis Altman is an author, professional fellow at La Trobe University, formerly visiting professor of Australian studies at Harvard and was listed by the Bulletin as one of the 100 most influential Australians. His works include the acclaimed Homosexual, Oppression and Liberation, Gore Vidal's America, Global Sex and his latest is God Save the Queen, The Strange Persistence of Monarchies. And to tell us about it, the academic and writer joins us now. Dennis, welcome to Breakfasters. Hey. Thanks for being here. You um, voted an enthusiastic yes in the referendum on whether to become a republic in 1999. All these years later, what's caused you to turn your mind to these issues again? Look, this book really began as a conversation with a very left-wing publisher in Britain where we were musing on the fact that some of the countries we think of as the most progressive, uh, particularly the Scandinavian countries, are monarchies. And it got me thinking as to whether it is possible that a constitutional monarchy is a useful check on the ambition of authoritarian politicians. And, you know, I can sum it up in the in the question: Would a prime minister, Boris, jo- a president, Boris Johnson, be more dangerous than a prime minister, Boris Johnson? I think. The problem for us in Australia is we don't actually have our own monarchy. We make do with the remnants of something from 12,000 miles away. That's clearly totally unsatisfactory. And so given that you address the question of our constitutional monarchies an antidote to the worst excesses of populist politicians, do you figure, well, yeah, they kind of are? I think that... When they work, they are, um, and there are certainly examples of that. The problem is, of course, this does depend upon a monarch um, behaving 
properly and there are examples of alleged constitutional monarchies where the monarch has behaved extraordinarily badly and the current best example of that is Thailand where although the claim is his constitutional monarchy the, the current king of Thailand is behaving more and more like an authoritarian ruler what is is Thailand where uh, you know Harry Potter costumes are prominent yes in, uh, you, you remember that um, last year uh, there were massive demonstrations in Bangkok against the king um, and I think the reference was he who cannot be named uh, which anyone who's read Harry Potter knows that I'm talking about which of course gave rise to people dressing as Harry Potter uh, as part of the protests um, the protests have seemed to have largely died down essentially because of the lockdowns um, Thailand now going through a very very difficult and dangerous COVID period you mentioned uh, that outside of the Middle East, monarchies remain largely symbolic holders of sovereignty without real powers. So let's focus on the Middle East. What's, what did you observe in your research there? Well, in the Middle East, we are, you, you have some totally uh, authoritarian monarchies, um, although the two monarchies that I looked at most, uh, Jordan and Morocco, are interesting in that they are less repressive and less anti-democratic than the majority of states in that area. Um, they are not equivalent to, say, Saudi Arabia, which is basically a theocratic monarchy uh, in which a very large family controls every aspect of Saudi life. Uh, Jordan and Morocco are what I call transitional monarchies. Monarchies. They're both countries in which the king has made noises about greater democracy. Uh, they're countries in which one could see a king with enough wisdom presiding over a shift towards a genuine democratic situation in the way that Juan Carlos did in Spain in the 1970s. And I think the Spanish example is probably the best example we have in recent times of a monarchy actually accepting the need to move away from holding power to becoming purely the symbolic expression of the nation. Mm. Uh, the world's attention is on Japan right now. Uh, you, you have a chapter in the book of, about the focus on Asia. But what can you tell us about Japan and its monarchy and how that re relates to the culture of the country? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Japan is one of the very few examples where after a defeat in war, uh, the occupying powers primarily the United States, decided to retain the emperor. Uh, they decided to retain the emperor as a way, I think, of bringing about major political shifts in Japan that would be seen as legitimate because they were supported by the emperor. So the Japanese emperor is a total figurehead. Uh, the constitution of Japan makes absolutely clear that there are no residual powers that he exercises. Uh, he has a great deal of moral authority, however, and at times the Japanese emperor has used that. It's interesting that the uh, 
previous and current Japanese emperor, for example, have been more willing to apologize for Japanese actions during World War II than have Japanese prime ministers. And I think that the Japanese emperor is very highly regarded as, again, a symbol of the country. And I think that's what is so important in distinguishing the situation of countries like Australia from a country like, say, Japan, or for that matter, Spain or Sweden or uh, any, any one of a dozen countries that have monarchies. In those countries, the monarch is the representative, the symbol of the nation. Now, that doesn't work in a country where the monarch doesn't live here and where the monarch is, in fact, uh, associated with a country that is increasingly foreign to very many Australians. You know, I've read that constitutional monarchies have allowed, uh, enabled their own existence by reinventing themselves in some countries as kind of the original reality stars in that they've made themselves, um, you know, endeared themselves to the people by becoming personalities. And I think of, you know, Denmark or Sweden or obviously the royal family in England. Are they that innocuous that we don't have to check them, that they're just these celebrities now? Or is there any real and valuable power in countries like that? It's a very good question because there are certainly indirect ways in which monarchs and royal families can exercise power. Even in countries um, such as the countries of Northern Europe where the expectation is that they don't have that power. Uh, and clearly the extraordinary celebrity that surrounds a royal family, which is rather different to any other sort of celebrity because it begins from the moment of birth and it continues right through until your death, unless of course you're totally disgraced and as is the case for the former King of Spain, you have to take exile uh, in the United Arab Emirates. But one of the things that I found writing the book was that it is actually quite difficult to be sure just how much influence um, constitutional monarchs are able to exert. Now we know that in Britain the Queen has after all now presided over I think 16 Prime Ministers a couple of whom were not even born when she came to the throne. We know that she meets with them regularly. It's very hard to believe that there are no cases where the Queen has made clear her wishes, and this has had some impact on the behaviour of governments. I think, though, that um, it's only in indirect, and I think it's unlikely that in a real standoff between the wishes of the monarch and the government, it would be very unlikely that the government would not prevail. What are your predictions for Charles and Australia's relationship <laughs> with the monarchy? Well, you know, as a Republican, I would like, as a Republican, I would like to say, wouldn't it be great if, when the Queen dies, we would say, look, come on, this is the time for us to become our own republic. What I think will happen is exactly the opposite. I think that when the Queen dies, there will be such an outburst of emotional sentiment, um, and that Charles will suddenly be swept in. Um, as uh, our sovereign, um, 
if you look at it, the, 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 the Windsors have got one thing going for them. They have a line of succession now that goes way beyond Charles. So when, when Charles becomes king, we already have a son and a grandson set to replace him. Um, and my personal feeling is that uh, the deep dislike and suspicion of politicians that I think is much greater now than it was when we failed to have a refer uh, Republican referendum means that it's very unlikely we're going to see a change in our status for a long time. Can we just close on this point? You're right that it seems counterintuitive to look to a hereditary monarchy to defend egalitarianism. Can you speak to that and how maybe that idea makes the idea of republicanism uh, a bit difficult? Look, the one thing that you one has to say about a monarchy is that the monarch does actually represent the entire country in a way that no politician can, because an elected politician um, is elected against somebody else or against many other people and therefore cannot speak for the country as a whole. And a number of monarchs have gone out of their way to try to speak for uh, the least advantaged parts of the country uh, and to support the least advantaged people in their country. And there is some evidence, I'm not totally persuaded by it, but there is some evidence that in those countries that have monarchies, there has been a greater degree of if not egalitarianism, uh, a greater degree of welfare and of concern for people who are least advantaged. Um, I don't want to make too much of it, but I think it is true that, and this to me is, is, is probably the final and important argument for monarchy, in constitutional, constitutional monarchies that now exist in the world, we are seeing far less of a rise of authoritarian populism um, of the sort that is unfortunately so rife in many parts of the world today. Well, all of this and more is exploring God Save the Queen, a strange persistence of monarchies, and uh, we've been speaking with its author, Dennis Altman. Thanks very much, Dennis. It was great fun. Triple R. Madeleine Martiniello is a Melbourne-based filmmaker working across documentary and art of cinema and is the director of the new documentary Palazzo di Cozzo about Melbourne's iconic Baroque homewares mogul, Franco Cozzo, which offers insights into furniture, family and the migrant experience. And to tell us about it, the filmmaker joins us now. Madeleine, welcome to Breakfasters. Hello, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Um, it's a very compelling subject that you've uh, delved into. How did Franco Cozzo become a part of your creative life? Um, look, it was really one of those sort of light bulb moments, I guess, one day just driving past the Footscray store and, you know, peering in that wonderful showroom. And I sort of thought, why has no one told Franco's story? Um, but I have to admit, like a lot of people who've spoken to me since making the film, I, I actually thought that the shop was closed. And so I thought, oh, I'd make this beautiful film to maybe look at this closed down Baroque showroom um, because I was always really attracted to the aesthetic of the furniture. Um, but I did a quick little bit of research and got Franco on the phone pretty quickly and um, went in there one day and said, you know, what do you think about a documentary? And after a bit of a sort of courtship, um, 
he agreed and we went from there. Was he in part a little bit like, what took you so long? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, no, to be honest, he's always um, saying to me, you know, lots of filmmakers have approached me and I always said no and you're the one that I said yes to. Um, I'm not sure if that's just his uh, salesman. (laughs) Not sure what to believe there. But, um, yeah, I think he was – I guess he was at a time in his life where he was ready to tell his story as well. The use of archival footage is excellent and uh, so crystal clear. Tell us how far back you go and what you discovered. Um, well, I mean, we were really, I really wanted to use archival footage as much as I could. We obviously have a whole suite of Franco's ads, which luckily he'd all kept in a, you know, old box at the back of one of his shops. So we've got a lot of those and they're pretty entertaining, but also, um, you know, he actually made quite a few appearances on, um, television in the 80s so there's a great great interview with him with Don Lane Um, and he's on other like quite classic shows like Willacy and stuff but I think my favorite is maybe the oldest piece of archive which is from um, actually a television show that Franco produced um, in the late 60s called Carousello and it was actually the first non-English speaking television show in Australia so um quite a milestone Mm. and it's a um gorgeous gorgeous um italian uh musical variety show and it's um just got all these young new migrants to australia singing italian songs and it's just got um a real beautiful air of nostalgia at one point franco says all my customers in the are in the cemetery uh what describe the trajectory of the business yeah, so I guess in the early days, Franco's customers really were the the new migrants, people exactly like him. So that's who he marketed to. Um, and so they were the Italians, but also the other post-war migrants at the time. So the Greeks and Macedonians. Um, so that whole kind of era of migration. Um, but today they're not really the people who buy the furniture so much. There are still a few of those people, but actually what's interesting is today his customers are really the the new waves of migrants, and I guess the, the migrants who live around Footscray, actually. And so there's a lot of um, people of African descent who buy his furniture now, but also um, like new Chinese migrants and other Southeast Asian migrants too. So it's, um yeah, quite interesting to see how that's, even though he doesn't have the same customer base, the, the people who are attracted to his wares are still people who are, who are new to this country. Franco is such a big personality and if you don't n- know him, you just know him from the ads and you know him kind of from these slogans. And what did you discover about him as a man that surprised you in filming this? Like did you kind of get behind the sales guy a little bit? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, that's one of the things with documentary is, you know, often films take a long time to make. And um, this one's been four years. And I think that can really help, you know, sometimes it's really necessary in terms of building that trust between the, um, the filmmaker and the subject, because he is a salesman, he's very good at that. But I think we did really connect and Look, he's a quite 
I would say what I've really discovered is he's a really sort of sensitive person. He's quite emotional. Um, and so I think that that's probably something that comes through is that he um, has like a real depth of feeling about a lot of things that have happened in his life. You mentioned uh, I used to live literally a couple hundred metres away from uh, the showroom and you said that it's still open. Uh, is, is it actually open like online? Can you go into the showroom? Because I don't think I've ever seen anyone inside there. It's open. It's wow. open. Footscray is open six days a week and if you wow. walk in, Franco will be there. Yes, I have um, seen him sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> there's no no. There's no online presence. There's no click and collect. You need to go in the old-fashioned way. <laughs> right. And you, you do confront some rumours that, you know, have circulated over the decades. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, look, I knew that was something that had to be addressed in the film because it's obviously something that's kind of contributed to his mystique in Melbourne um, about who, you know, about why he's kind of remained in the public consciousness so much. But I guess I didn't want to make the film about that because it wasn't what I um, was originally drawn to. I was really drawn to, I guess, like the pop culture element of his story and the the migrant aesthetic but yeah we do we do go into that and Franco Franco speaks to it so people have to see the film to uh see what he says okay <laughs> uh what do you think about the style of furniture I love it I find it I guess pretty nostalgic because I grew up with Italian grandparents who didn't actually own furniture from Franco Cozzo, but I spent a lot of times in homes of Italians from that period and um, I guess I'm just really drawn to that kind of aesthetic. There's something that feels really at home to me, but um, I think it wouldn't fit in my yeah. little apartment. Yeah. <laughs> and it, he says there's, he has $5 million worth of stock to get rid of still. Yes, he, I guess, so part of the film also traces him as he comes to terms with, I guess, whether he's going to sell Foots, the Footscray store or not, um, which, you know, is kind of the jewel in his crown and um, something that took him a really long time to decide what he was going to do. But, you know, he's in his 80s, so he mm. had to make a decision. Um, but, yeah, he's still... I guess, trying to figure out whether he's going to keep the business going or whether there's going to be one final grand sale. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, there's something uh, kind of unassuming about his advertising genius, isn't there? Like it, it looks like a sort of casual trick of kitsch, but there's more going on than perhaps meets the eye. Yeah, I mean, one of the people we interviewed for the film is an advertising strategist and she kind of says that, like, he could rival Coke um, <laughs> in terms of his formula for his ads, um, which I guess is potentially accidental but also really kind of clever and on point. And I think what really was the main thing that um, – made him stand out so much is the fact that he spoke in three languages mm. um, in the ads, so in English, in Italian, but also in Greek. Um, and, you know, at the time 
when they came out, I think it's hard for people to sort of imagine because we're so used to seeing them now, but that was quite um, groundbreaking and I guess kind of um, confusing in a way to a sort of mainstream Australian audience to see these other languages um, on TV. And because he spoke in those languages, he spoke directly to his customers, which um, I think was a huge reason why he was so successful. So they both built his standing as a pop culture icon because they were so unusual but also um, cut right through yeah. to the people he wanted to sell to. Can you tell us where we can see Palazzo de Cozzo? Yes, yeah, so it's premiering at MIF on Saturday the 15th, I believe, of August, praying that everything goes ahead, mm. um, re-COVID. And then after its MIF screenings, there's a few, um, it will be having a cinema release and we'll be playing at Nova Cinema in September. Excellent. Plato de Cozzo is the name of the documentary. Head to MIF.com.au for all the details. And we've been speaking with director Madeleine Martiniello. Thanks so much, Madeleine. Thank you. When I was younger, I wanted to be um, many things, but one of the things when I was probably about 12 or 13, I wanted to be an actor. I was I loved all TV, soap and dramas. Uh, and my two favourite, I guess, subjects in primary school were drama and PE, uh, complete Different, completely different audiences. <laughs> completely different demographics. Not if you're taking a dive in soccer. Oh, that's true. Oh, boom. Absolutely. I saw one of those last night. But anyway, um, yeah, and, and like I, I absolutely loved it. And I went to this uh, acting school when I, was, uh, when I was younger called the Academy of Television. They had... I wanted to go to that. Did you? Yeah, I went to some... I went to some like dodgy oh, did you do? version. You did acting as well. Yeah, I was a drama kid, mate. Oh, were yeah, you? Yeah. <sighs> anyway, carry on. <laughs> but I'm just jealous that you got to go to the Academy of Television. I just remember the ad that they had on TV, and yeah. it's this scene, and it's so terrible. And then that someone yells out "cut," and then the actor turns to the camera and goes, "We were acting. You can act too." And join the Academy of Television. Like it was the worst. But I mean, I was sold. Got you in. Got me. Well, if I, my mum had let me go, it would have got me in. Yeah, so I, I used to go. So I went and I did that and I would do that every Saturday morning uh, and then I, I was playing sport on the other day, I think on the Sunday morning. Um, and then I, I started going to auditions after I'd been, um, yeah, acting, I guess, for six months or something like that. Brutal, absolutely brutal. Like um, just going in and just having that face, no, okay, see you later kind of a thing. I went to a group audition. Do you want to um, give it another go? Acting? No, that was the that was what oh, they would say to you oh, when you oh, yes. so true. Try and do it this way. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Just that was... one more, <laughs> one more take. <laughs> but I liked that that you were convinced that I was playing yeah, myself. That was really yes, good. Thank very you. good. Um, I did this group audition, and there were like fifty people in it uh, to be part of an agency. <gasps> and then they were like, "Okay, if we call your name out. If we call your name out, stand up." And so, like, I stood up, and I was like. Oh, so proud and they're like you can leave thanks very much for coming today no oh my god that was my last audition I think I, I think I got rejected from like three or four auditions so like sport was my other thing <laughs> you can leave <laughs> take you a bow can leave. I thought I was a winner and I was a goddamn loser take a bow and just keep backing out of the room and just back out again that's my one more time <laughs> It was br- 
brutal, right? Oh, um, I remember going out to the car and then I was crying. And Dad's like, it's okay. I was like, no. He's like, well, you know, you've got cricket. <laughs> Oh God! You and you know, I got I got selected in sporting teams. So then I kind of gave away acting for um for a little while, um and auditioning and everything. But years later, and this is still probably about fifteen years ago, but I went to uh, an audition for a reality TV show. Don't judge me. Get out! What was it? Bachelor? No. Big Brother? No. It was a singing. Oh, cool! Oh my God! I know you can sing. Well, I can't. Apparently, I didn't get through. <laughs> Um, Australian Idol season two. So this is way. This is season two, two thousand and four. So Andrew G. Still, mm. yes, yeah, Andrew G. Not and James, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was so the first one that was Guy Sebastian Chanel, huge. Um, and then so I went to the next one with a friend from school, and it was like we went the night before. We went at like ten p.m. the night before just to see what the line was going to be like, and it was packed. So we we had stuff like a sleeping bag, and we went and we we slept overnight, and oh. <laughs> the people, like we got, I guess people are going through stages because we were waiting there a long time. People were cold. It started raining at one point, and then a group of them started singing. Rise up! Do you remember that song that the Australian Idol contestants sung together? It was a, a terrible. No. And then they started singing it, and I kid you not. Everyone, there were like hundreds of people. So it was the daggiest, most embarrassing. <laughs> anyway, I, I joined in. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, so it, it started raining and everything. And then the next morning, it was probably, I don't know, seven in the morning and Andrew G, Andy G come walking past with James Matheson, all fresh showered, hot coffees and like, morning guys, hope you're ready for the audition. Um, and went in and there was this, there, uh, I think it was like uh, one of the stadiums, like a tennis Margaret Court Arena, something like that. Not hers. Anyway, I went in there and... Um, and then after the auditions, they'd have like there was a host that was there in the auditions, and as you come out, they'd be like, "Did you get in?" And you'd have to like you'd do an interview, and some of the people that got through, they're like, "Can you sing for us what you sang?" And some were amazing, and others were just horrendous, so bad. But they thought they were good. And it's like, oh, these are the ones that are going to get on television that you see. Ah. So the television auditions is round three. Would you believe? Oh my god! So they and and you've worked in t- uh, reality TV. You probably know all this stuff already, Daniel. Um, so rounds one and two uh, are, are in front of judges whom I don't know. Marsha oh, so Hines not, wasn't even there. It's not like Dicko and no. whoever. Oh, I was like, well, who are you? <laughs> anyway, they said the same thing to me. Um, so I did my audition, and the first round one, they're like, "Yep, good, strong vo- voice." Uh, you go to round two. They gave me a card, and then you go wait in another line, and then get in there and. <laughs> So it was nearly the exact same line. Good, strong voice, not what we're after this year, thanks. And then left. I was like, what about Paulini? Paulini had a strong voice. <laughs> anyway. Not what we're after this year. So they're, saying, yeah. they're not saying you're a bad singer. Yeah, it just didn't work out for me. Um, but that's okay. I mean, I still, I mean, I'd never, that, was, that was my going back to auditions. I was like, no, I'm going to do it this time. And that was my last audition mm. 14 years ago. <laughs> TV since you've been yeah, vindicated. You know what? I've been as an extra. You don't have to audition for extra roles, thank God. Um, no, I have been. I've done a couple of commercials which I have auditioned for and and got. But I reckon of my auditions, and I I do have an agent now, so I do some. What commercials have you done? 
Um, oh, not, I wouldn't say TV commercial. Well, oh. one for Golf Australia. Oh, my God, my two You and your loves. sports yeah. coming, finally. Yeah, so I was Golf Australia app and they had that on for about two two or three years, I think it was. Um, what were you doing in it? Uh, there were, it was like a, I was just playing golf. So like having a <laughs> shot, like a, doing a drive and it had me in, and then it had like a screenshot of a pro golfer and then it was just encouraging people like anyone can do it, even she can do it. <laughs> and it had me as an amateur golfer. Uh, so that was me. I was on this other. Oh my god! (laughs) And now you can leave. (laughs) Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. (laughs) 